Well, good morning, Grace Community Church. You're alive and ready. Excited to be here? Amen. All right. Good energy this morning. We're glad to have you here today on a beautiful June morning. And as Kevin mentioned, I'm sure you've seen the progress on the new construction out here. And we're very excited about what's already going on there. And know that's going to be a blessing to our church and to our youth and to our community. Today, we start a new series on the book of Judges, which is an Old Testament book. It's an ancient book, but it has relevant themes. In fact, in our subtitle, is kind of an overview of those themes of a dark world and a broken people, and yet a faithful God. And today, I'm going to just lay the foundation for the series and to cover a few, the first two Judges, actually. And so you can follow along on the screen, or if you want to turn to Judges chapter 1, we'll get started here in just a moment. You know, someone has said that if you're wrong about what the problem is, you'll be wrong on the solution. You know, humans have a lot of problems, don't they? Don't they? You're sure thinking, well, that's just you. (laughs) But we do. We have a lot of problems with love. We have a lot of problems with with peace, and with just life in general. And so do God's people. In fact, the Bible doesn't smooth over the problems of God's people. The Bible is so realistic. It can bless you, and it can make you squirm. And so when we look at these passages here, we're going to see in the book of Judges, we're going to see that the problems then are still the problems now. And the wrong solutions then are the wrong solutions now. But the solution then is the solution now. And Judges makes a great case for that truth. So we're going to go back 3,000 years into the early history of Israel. And we're going to look at some crazy stuff. Are you ready for that? In fact, if you open up the book of Judges and say, okay, I'm going to start this book. In the first verse... A key Bible character passes away, and that's Joshua. And we have to look at the backstory of this, otherwise it's not going to make any sense as the events unfold in Judges. And so turn back just a page to Joshua 24. He's the leader of the nation, and he gathers everyone together. And he gives some history and some reminders to them. He wants to remind them how God worked through Abraham, and how he called them, and how he made promises to them. He wants to remind them about Moses and how Moses led them and how Moses gave them guidance and and how God, through that, protected them and gave them provision and the law. And Joshua himself is a leader full of a lot of passion because he's one of two of the survivors that actually saw the Egyptians drown and also saw, unfortunately, God's people die in the wilderness. So he's very motivated and very serious about keeping Israel connected to God. Joshua courageously leads them into the promised land. And some of those themes coming out of the book of Joshua are to remind them that they can obey God because he keeps his promises. And they can trust God because of the kind of victories that they had like at the battle of Jericho. So he reminds them in verse 13. He says, I gave you a land on which you had not labored, 
and cities which you had not built, and you have lived in them. You are eating of vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. And then the famous charge of Joshua in verse 14 and 15. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. And if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which, are, which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods, the Amorites, in whose land you are living. And then this famous, famous statement, it's probably on a plaque or maybe in your house. He says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There have already been given instructions on how they are to, to obtain the land and to divide the land and to enjoy the land. They've also been given instructions about how they are to drive out the inhabitants of the land and that they are not to make any covenants with them or not to serve their gods and not to intermarry with them. They are also told, don't be afraid of the big armies and don't engage in plundering them nor enslaving them. And he goes a little further in verse 19 where he kind of challenges them and he says, you will not serve the Lord because he's holy and he's jealous. And what he's doing is he's driving, point home, uh, driving a point home that he will not tolerate foreign gods. That won't work. And so the people hear this and of course their response is, we will serve the Lord. We won't forsake God. And that sets the stage for the book of Judges. Let's look at chapter 1 in verse 1. It says, Now it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And so Judah is selected, and Judah fights, and 10,000 of them are defeated. And we look at verse 6, and it says, But Adonai Bezek fled. And they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Now just in case that grosses you out, just so you know a few things. That they weren't commanded to do that. It was kind of in one of those retribution type of societies where an eye for an eye. But why they would do this is because cutting off the thumbs, they were big into bows and arrows and of course swords and so if you take their toes off as well, they, they lose their balance, couldn't walk, so they couldn't fight. And basically, these powerful kings would come, become just dependents. In fact, it gives this illustration. Look what, look what this king here says. He says, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to gather up scraps under my table. And as I have done, so God has repaid me. So that's what he had been doing. To 70 kings. And they became like dogs, just eating the scraps off his table. So in all his arrogance, he realized basically that God has just paid him back. And so he thinks it's just. He just really couldn't give them a thumbs up on what they had accomplished. <laughs> but they go on and they capture Jerusalem and other territories successfully. And then we see in verse 12, we get a glance at our first judge. Where Caleb, the other one of two who had come through, the, uh, through Egypt, through the Red Sea, and through the, through the wilderness. He's a godly man. And he motivates the troops by saying, you can wed my daughter 
if you will defeat this particular city. And a man named Othniel fulfills that. And he is given Caleb's daughter, and they are granted to have fields with springs. And see, I think the reason this is here is because it's just a little glimpse what Caleb understood that God wanted for Israel in the promised land. He wanted them to take it, to settle it, and to enjoy it. But more than that, he wanted them to live in harmony with him so they could show the other nations God. And that's why it was so important in these instructions for them to drive out the evil. We go on further in verse 19. Judah comes across some iron chariots, the latest technology in warfare at that time. And it freaks out and he doesn't push them out. He calculates his strength instead of God's strength. And he makes a huge mistake. We look on the rest of chapter 1. There's other compromises made. Israel's thinking, hey, if we could just make them forced labor, that would make us stronger as a nation. So you see that uh, Manasseh and Ephraim, Zebulun, Asher, the others, they all, in fact, eight times it's mentioned here that they did not drive them out. And so they showed less courage than the people who did not know God. Chapter 1 ends, though, with, with progress. They're in the promised land. They begin to settle it. And just two generations before, they were Egyptian slaves. So, so much has happened, and I imagine they're trying to process all this. What a blessing, and what great opportunity for our grandchildren. But then we go to chapter 2. And the angel of the Lord says, He came up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt. And led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as, as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this that you've done? So he gives some perspective here. What? Have you forgotten me? Have you forgotten Egypt? Have you forgotten my unconditional covenant? He repeats these instructions to them. Say, you're not supposed to be making covenants and you're supposed to be tearing down the altars. So he scolds them and he shares with this phrase, what have you done? That tension where God has promised to bless them, promised all these things and yet they keep blowing it. It's very similar to the tension that parents feel at times when they have so much they want to bless the kids with. But the kids won't follow. What tension is here? So he gives consequences. And he says, I won't drive them out. They're going to be thorns in your side. And their gods are going to be a snare to you. But remember, God is still being faithful to them. Because he doesn't leave them. But he gives them this jolt. And then we see in verse 4, their response is that they weep. And they sacrifice to the Lord. We move further into the passage here. And it brings up again about Joshua dying. But it brings up something else in this transition in verse 10. It says that all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. So we see the old generation is out. Yet remember... The inhabitants are still there. This generation that is gone was the generation that had made the pledges. 
They are the generation that saw the victories. But they also compromised. They also had partial obedience. And so it describes that this next generation after them, the idea that they didn't know the Lord or, or his works, probably knew of them, but they had no significance to them. Because they were in this new progressive world and culture, which I'm sure, as any pluralistic society, would be very appealing and have a lot of things to draw them and, 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 and get their interest and their attention and their affections. But also, it would be threatening to them because to carry on their parents' traditions, I'm sure the culture started to hit them with those are old-fashioned and outdated, and we don't do that. So, you know, I was thinking when I read this, because it's a sad thing, but transitioning faith from one generation to another is a hard thing to do. It's easy to say that the parents blew it, or easy to say that these kids these days just don't get it. But there actually is something for us to really think about when we hear this. The Israelites, in their culture, they were instructed to love the Lord, their God, with all their hearts, with all their soul, with all their strength. And they were to do it in an everyday way. They were to do it when they rise and when they walk and when they sit and when they, they lie down. And the children were also encouraged in, in a, an atmosphere where they were to, to honor their parents and to obey their parents. So both had a responsibility. And I know we've all seen the exceptions. We've seen it where some parents don't really live a godly life and their kids live for God. And we see those who live a wonderful godly life and their children want nothing to do with it. But here, this speaks of something national. This is generally where the whole nation was in this trend to forget God. You know... This, I don't really have to seek of an illustration for this because I think we're watching it before our own eyes. Within our own culture, nationally and religiously, a lot of young people today are clueless about what made this nation great or what made our faith and how our faith influenced our nation. But today, because of Christ, we aren't under the national traditions and the ceremonial laws of Israel. But the greatest commandment that was given to them in the Old Testament is still the same for us to love the Lord our God with all our heart and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus even continued that for us. And the reason that didn't change is not because it was a Jewish thing, but because it's a human thing that that's what God intended. Though the cultures change, though the traditions change, this doesn't. Men are always busy making idols. We make them with our hands and we grant them deity. Or we take good things and we place them above our God. So parents, maybe something to think about. That we need to make sure that we show our devoted love to God. Because our kids know our idols and they watch our compromises and that reduces the reality of God. And that's what can transfer. And young people, if I could say something to you today, don't blame your parents for your spiritual condition. If they failed, know this. This is your time. 
This is your time for your generation. And you can't afford to be disgruntled or cynical. The traditions change, the cultures change, but a heart that seeks God, remembers God, obeys God, that looks the same from generation to generation. And also know this, you're being pursued. You're being pursued by God, and you're being pursued by the culture and the idols in the culture. And just like Israel and just like your parents, you're faced with the same situation to choose this day whom you will serve. Amen? But what happens here is verse 11. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. And thus they provoked the Lord to anger. When it uses this term, the Baals, it speaks of the Canaanites. They had a polytheistic or many God system. I did a little study on this and it is quite, quite amazing and actually quite dark. And sometimes when you come to this passage, unbelievers or even believers, it's really hard to grasp and to process this wiping out a whole nation, this genocide in a sense. But I think as we all work on trying to understand that, that we would remember a few things about the situation. First of all, in Deuteronomy 20, God had already told Israel to make sure when you come up against another nation to offer peace before and hopefully to prevent war. But with the Canaanites, he didn't. And the reason he gives is because if you don't destroy them, they will lead you in doing the detestable things that they do to their gods. Also, the Canaanite religion and culture was grossly cruel and perverted. There were things going on such as child sacrifice and sodomy and bestiality and sacred prostitution. So they weren't innocent. And though as controversial as this is to destroy them and to drive them out, Secular society, especially today, with the standards of justice, would also evoke such actions against these gross violations against humanity. In other words, God was basically saying this is something that the world needs. This is good for the world. It's kind of the surgeon who has to make that decision to cut off that gangrene limb. And when he does, there's still going to be healthy flesh that goes with it so it's a tough thing but I was thinking through this when how would their culture look at our culture today and maybe what would they think about the direction that we are heading when you study these gods in the Baal system they're similar to the Greek gods and to the Roman gods and to the Scandinavian god systems when you look at these gods they reflect weak and impulsive and selfish and dysfunctional humans. In fact, it's almost like they are a, a soap opera in the sky full of depraved humans. They also had ample warning because what happened in Egypt, we're looking at over 40 years. They heard the reports of the Egyptians drowning. They heard of the kings that were defeated. In fact, Rahab, her city was terrorized and that actually led her 
to believe in the God of the Hebrews. So their sins were growing in spite of all the signs and warnings. And also I think it's important to know that it wasn't, this commandment wasn't given because Israel was holy and righteous. In fact, right here what they're doing proves they jumped right in with them. And so we see two things about God's grace with this commandment. You see, it's God's grace to defeat a cancerous nation that is wanting to destroy and ruin other nations. And you see, it's God's grace to spare and to establish a nation that would reflect him and goodness and be good for the world. In fact, Romans, Paul says that if it weren't for God, Israel would look like Sodom and resemble Gomorrah. And so what did they do? They forsook God and served the idols. And then that statement, and bowed themselves, that had to be hard on God to process. So God responds in verse 14, and he responds with anger. And it's not a selfish anger, but it's an anger of love. Because he made them and freed them. He loved them. It was very personal. They also only knew God because he entered their world. And God never wanted a citizen relationship with Israel. And he didn't want like a sheep relationship. He wanted a husband-wife intimate relationship with his people. And it's obvious by all this that God was way more interested in this relationship than they were. And so God's anger burns because of his total love for Israel and for them not to become like the Canaanites. So what does he do in verse 15, chapter 2? He opposed them. Look what it says. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for all evil. And down the end of the verse saying they, the Israelites, were severely distressed. So his hand, which was so specific to lead them and protect them and to care for them, now was specifically opposing them. I couldn't get over this word, wherever. Wherever. Wow, what a huge source of stress that you're being opposed by God wherever you are. You know, and that's not real popular preaching today. There are some preachers out there that are saying that God is always for you and that if there's any stress, it's from the devil or it's just negative energy. But what if the stress in our life is actually because of our disobedience and because of the idols in our life? I think God's opposition is actually his proof that he is still with us and hasn't forsaken us. The end of chapter 2 goes on, and it kind of gives this overview of really what the rest of the book is. It describes what we call the sin cycle, where you see the people have forsaken God, they worship foreign gods, God is angry, opposes them, doesn't drive out their enemies. The people then are plundered spiritually, emotionally, by the culture and by the idols. And what happens then is that they go into bondage. It's the cycle. The idols take from them because the idols don't deliver. And what happens is great distress causes them to cry out and to try, cry out to God. And God, who's always aware, he selects a leader to save them. And Judges is this story of God keeping his promise to his people, to his undeserving people. 
So we go into chapter 3. And we see right in the beginning here that, that they are enslaved. God allows them to be enslaved by Cushan and Rishathaim, which name means double wickedness. He's the king of Mesopotamia. And they go into slavery for eight years. This was not the plan for Israel. But God allows this. But now he's going to send help because of their cry. And he sends these judges. And who are these judges? They're deliverers. Most of them are military leaders. Some give judicial guidance. Some we know very little about. But they all are God's response to his broken people when they cry out. Another characteristic about them is that they're temporary solutions. And the reason is they die. <laughs> and when you're, what you're going to see, this passage brings out, and we're going to see throughout the whole book, when they die, the people return to sin in a worse way. The rebellion is worse. The oppression is heavier. The repentance is less heartfelt. And the judges seem more flawed, and the revival seems weaker. And you're going to see that throughout the series. So we go now to our first judge, Othniel, verse 9. It says, when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to, liver, to deliver them. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. And when he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, so that he prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. Then the land had rest for 40 years. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So the God who had sent trouble now sends Othniel. There's no flaws that are reported about him, but it clearly says here for this judge that the Spirit of God came upon him. And the peace that came with that was real, and it was real for 40 years. But when he died, it died, and the cycle begins again. See, the only way for permanent peace is for God's people to have a leader who does not die. And everything you see here in Judges is for God's people, is for the church, it's for you and I to look at and to learn that what we really need is a Savior, a living one who was dead but now is alive forevermore. We move to the second judge. His name is Ehud. And he's quite an interesting character and this is quite an interesting story. In verse 15 he says, but when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made himself a sword which had two edges a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. Now, there's no information that's given to us of his character or of his qualification, but likely he's a military man. And this detail of being left-handed was very, very key. And there's some different thoughts on it, that maybe the security didn't catch him coming in with that because they usually inspect the left thigh for the, right, the right-handed warriors. Some speculate that maybe his right hand was crippled or that he was paralyzed and posed a lesser type of threat. However, Judges 20 later talks about in the Benjamite tribe that there actually was uh, some left-handed slingers. 
So God knew, and he knew the right person to send. Look at verse 17. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. And this tribute was like the price of slavery. They're looking at 18 years where they had to give goods or give money to this king. Ehud might have done this before and maybe was a, a, a familiar face, which could have lessened the security as well. Now, look at some details. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. That's why this story gets nicknamed the lefty versus the hefty. <laughs> I thought what I would do because of this detail, I thought I would do a word study on the word fat. And I found that the word fat here actually means fat. <laughs> so it came about when he had finished presenting the tribute that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, the king said, keep silence. And all who attended him left him. And Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool Roof chamber, and that word cool there refers to temperature. I'm sure it wasn't all that cool, but it could have been. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud stretched out his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. Now, normally, that's enough information. We don't need any more information on a stabbing. But look, it goes further. The handle also went in after the blade. We're looking at 18 inches plus. More details. And the fat closed over the blade. For he did not draw the sword out of his belly. I wonder if he was upset because he made that wonderful sword and he wasn't going to get it back. <laughs> but you ever see in a movie when there's a stabbing? And, you know, they'll go and they'll stab him. And then, of course, they do this little second. You know, and the eyes get bigger. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, I'm the only one who watches violence? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I got you. Making me feel great. But I don't think that happened. And the reason I don't think that happened is because of what's said next. It says, and the refuse came out. Do you want me to do a word study on refuse? I thought maybe for some I would just give a good English translation. The poop came out. Aren't you glad I didn't waste any time on that word study? And I think it's also good that Jay isn't doing this lesson because we would get some great details for sure. Look at verse 23. <laughs> then Ehud went out into the vestibule and shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had gone out, his servants came and looked and behold, the doors of the roof chamber were locked and they said, he is only relieving himself in the cool temperature room. And they waited until they became anxious in other versions, it says, to the point of embarrassment. And I'm thinking, this is too much information. <laughs> I would imagine there was an odor that came out, which basically was a good thing because it allowed for some time for Ehud to make his escape. Isn't God creative? <laughs> he knows how to bring up the best out of people. <laughs> oh, never, never mind. Let's go further. You're not going to talk about this sermon at lunch today. I, I just know that. <laughs> Let's go further. But behold, he did not open the doors of the roof chamber, and therefore they took the key and opened them, and behold, the master had fallen to the floor. 
And the story goes on where Ehud then fled up into the hills and he sounds a trumpet and all the Israelite warriors come down and they defeat, look in verse 29, they defeat the Moabites. They struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men, and no one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. Remember earlier when we said that God opposed Israel wherever? Well, here and now we see that he's for them wherever, even in a king's cool restroom. You think God has a sense of humor? You ever seen it in your own life? Absolutely. You don't think God knew that the critics would read this and his enemies would read a story like this? Don't you think it would be God to to use the element of humor to dismantle the pride of those who oppose his people? I was thinking about this, so this is crazy, but this story actually may have been scarier than the reports of the Red Sea because it could have been that people processing this about God and wherever he is, and they might have thought, well, not everyone lives by a sea, so maybe I'm safe, but everyone has to take a pee. I'm sorry, parents. What a, what a story. <laughs> From big toes and thumbs that are cut off, to vanishing blades and a fat man, to odors from a cool restroom. But really, when you read this, as we're going to see in all these upcoming lessons, the problems then are still the problems now. There are still dark hearts. Still darkness comes out of us. The problems then are the problems now that people are still broken. We all fall short. We're all sinners. Even with all the advancements that we have and all the knowledge and the history we could look at, we still fall short and are broken. In fact, today we still have modern day Canaanites who are going around exploiting. On our news, we see it every night, what they're doing and the kind of barbaric things that still go on. We have cultures that are still manufacturing idols and drawing people into affection with those idols. And we still have God's people who find themselves in the cycle of sin, experiencing compromise and drifting into slavery to their idols and to sin. You know what, idols, it's unfortunate, but idols always really ultimately point us to ourselves. They point us to things that promise us fulfillment, but they don't deliver. Money, sex, power, career, significance, all these things really can leave us with a heavy dose of narcissism. But what's good is that the solution then is the solution now. That God is still faithful. Amen? And really, when you see the craziness of these stories, what I think is so crazy is how faithful God is. That he knew Israel would fail, but he still called them and gave them his name. He knew that Israel would prostitute themselves with other gods, yet he still sent a deliverer to them when they cried. He knew that Israel would repeatedly fail, yet he still entered into them with with an unconditional covenant that he would be with them for no other reason than his love for them. 
Every time they cried, he delivered. He knew that this would repeat. The solution then is that God gave a deliverer. And it wasn't because they were worthy. And it wasn't because when they cried that they then worked at straightening all everything up and becoming religious and holy for God. It was only because of God's grace. The solution that we have today is an ultimate deliverer has been provided for us. One who is not temporary. One who came at a premium price for God. The giving of his own son. His son who became sin for us. That we could have the righteousness of God. His son who came and died and rose again and conquered death. So that we could have that as well. So maybe what's most crazy is after we see God's grace and his faithfulness in this ancient book and in these stories. What would be most crazy is that, that we wouldn't accept his solution. Or that we would keep our idols and not drive them out and would refuse his grace and power for victory. I want to invite you today, if you're here and maybe you don't know if you're a believer or maybe you would even say that you're not a believer. And maybe you have lots of questions for this Christian faith that, that's still here today after all these years. Maybe you're skeptical. I would love to invite you to the deliverer. In fact, Jesus is the deliverer. And what is told to us in the New Testament, that if we would confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. And that applies to anyone, no matter where you are, no matter where you've been. Amen? And Christians, we read something like this and we can relate. It's kind of parallel to our, our lives. God has freed us. God has saved us. And yet we find ourselves drifting and holding on and not driving out things that keep us from our, our intimate relationship with God. And we experience, unfortunately, that wherever type of opposition. May we today determine to drive out our idols. May we determine today to trust God in his power to give us victory. May we know and bravely know that we can trust him because he keeps his promises. And could we be the light that he has intended, a light he intended for Israel to shine? Could we be that light to shine in our culture today until he comes? If you have any questions today, I want to talk with one of the pastors. We have room one back here, over to my left. Just like to encourage you to go in and they'll meet with you quickly, talk with you, maybe set up another time to talk with you if you've got questions, but we'd love to do that. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, you're so good. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what you've preserved in it for us all these years. Thank you for the pounding message of your grace and your faithfulness to us in spite of us. And Lord, bless each one here today. I pray, Lord, we would be brave to trust you, to follow you, to obey you, to have you in our lives as our deliverer. 
Thank you, God, for your grace. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for coming. God bless you and have a great day.